1: Welcome to New Books and Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semecka, professor of history at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be discussing a new book by Dr. Ellen S. Moore titled, The Transformation of American Sex Education, Mary Calderon and the Fight for Sexual Health, published by New York University Press. Dr. Ellen S. Moore is a historian of the medical profession and holds the rank of professor emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. Her prior publications include the book, Restoring the Balance, Women Physicians and the Profession of Medicine, 1850 to 1995, and is the co-editor of Women Physicians and the Cultures of Medicine. Dr. Moore, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. And feel free to use my first name. Ellen is just fine. Um, and uh, if I can call you Jane, that would that would be great.
1: Oh, um, yes, please do. Please okay. do.
0: Okay. So um,
1: you- it's really a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you for joining me. You write in the book about meeting Mary Calderon early in your career. Can you tell us the story and how you became interested in sex education?
0: Well, um, when I first met Mary Calderon, um, honestly, my only experience with sex education was the experience of my parents having avoided all direct conversation about sex education and uh, in time-honored fashion, handing me a book, a book that turned out to be about animals and not people. And so I had no particular connection to the topic of sex education. I was a lowly postdoc at the university of Rochester. Um, The, the, you know, uh, graduate students and undergraduates are lower than postdocs, but everybody else is higher up. And I was in my dingy little office and I I got a phone call that the uh, um, alumni director wanted to know if I would interview someone who was coming to give a talk to the undergraduates. And this was Dr. Mary Steichen Calderon. And I said, well, um, who is that? And uh, why, why do you want me to interview her? And it turned out it was because I was in the very early stages of researching uh, one of the books you, just mentioned, Restoring the Balance, which is a history of women physicians in American medicine. And Mary Calderon was a physician. She was a U of R alumni. And the alumni had invited her to, or the undergraduates had invited her to talk about sex. And she was at the time 80 years old. So this seemed promising. And uh, and so I uh, agreed to do the interview knowing nothing about her, nothing about sex education. And I will have to say that it was a remarkable experience. Calderon had been trained in the theater and she knew how to present herself in the most dramatic way possible. And uh, about a week after this conversation, she presented herself in my office. And in those days, there was no Wikipedia. There was no um, World Wide Web. You couldn't just go and do background on someone. Um, And I frankly forgot all about it until she showed up. But there she was, very imposing, clear blue eyes, Uh, fine silvery hair. She wore a kind of turban to keep her hair in place. And she sat down and with this theatrical voice for the next hour or so, she told me her entire life story. And at the time, I was really in awe of this ability to share. And I didn't think of it as oversharing. But um, I learned later that telling her story was what she did. It was the basis for her ideas about sex education. So uh, it was it was not unusual for her at all. She had done this hundreds of times, but for me it was quite dramatic. So that is that's how I that's how I got to um, uh, uh, learn of the existence of Mary Calderon. That's how I got to learn that sex education might be an interesting subject. I included a little bit about her in in the book on the history of women physicians, but I tucked the whole idea away and intended to come back to it. And I made appointments uh, for several meetings in New York with Calderon following up on this initial meeting. And it's a good thing I did, because within about five years, uh, her dementia began to become apparent. So if I had waited to come back to it entirely, uh, I would have been quite disappointed. But as it was, I was able to meet her several times and get a real feel for her personality, her combination of charm and imperiousness, and command <laughs> and, uh, the, the rather complex impression she made, which everyone remarks on.
1: Yeah. So she sounds like such, she had such charisma. Yes. yes. Yeah. Charisma is exactly
0: right. I, yeah. I, that, that's perfect.
1: Yeah, it really comes through your narrative of how charismatic and almost like a, a forceful personality, but not in a negative way, you know, in, a, uh, in an engaging way. She had a contagiousness, obviously, with her way that she spoke and presented herself, her, her bearing. Right. Um, right, So how did Calderon's childhood and her early life lead her to her interest in sexual education and public health?
0: well um i i guess that is in a way contained in my experience of first meeting her because um, th- there is a sociologist a british sociologist named ken plummer who uh, wrote a book about sexual stories and calderon had a sexual story uh, her her story i would call and this is borrowing from Plummer, a recovery narrative. And it really is based on her childhood and in in her childhood. She had a quite extraordinary childhood in that she was the daughter of the very famous early photographer, Edward Steichen. And Edward Steichen, who... um, was in the elite circle of early 20th century and even mid 20th century photographers. He uh, uh, was an art photographer. He was a fashion photographer. He uh, curated exhibitions for the Museum of Modern Art, including the family of man. Um, He uh, was in Paris. He took his family to Paris when Mary was a baby. And they lived there in a very Bohemian environment. There were artists coming and going in the house all the time. And he was very free about the human body. He photographed nudes. Um, uh, He was very joyful about it. And so that was his father. And on the other hand, uh, her mother, who, although she wanted to become a singer, gave that up for her husband's career. A, an old and lamentable story, as we know in women's history. Um, she was somewhat embittered. She was, as, even more embittered when it became clear that he was. A flirt, and I don't know if I, uh, "womanizer" is uh, the best word, but it is a word that was used by Mary to describe him, and uh, um, she, she was the the let's say victim of both his father, her father's um, unrealistic depiction of what the world is like on the one hand, and her mother's very punitive attitude towards sexuality, very frightened and very uh, negative. So this played out in two, according to Calderon's story, two very dramatic episodes in Calderon's life. The first is that from the time she was perhaps four years old, her mother encased her hands in metal mittens before she went to bed so that Mary would not masturbate. And Mary, in retrospect, said that she thinks she was always sexual, and this was exceedingly disturbing to her mother. Her mother was right in line with Uh, Victorian and late Victorian attitudes towards masturbation, uh, which was a very negative attitude. It was something that needed to be at at the worst controlled and at the very best eliminated entirely as a practice, but it was very traumatic for for Mary. Her father, on the other hand, in spite of his um, rather liberal attitudes, was um, brought up in the same in in the same milieu to some extent. And so Mary, when she was about eight years old, was um, unfortunately enticed to follow the family's young French gardener to the back of the house where there was a gardening shed. Where he exposed himself to her and this happened two or three times, and the the reason this uh, stopped is because her father Edward Steichen discovered them and uh, although Mary remembers that there was no sexual contact the 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 young man he was perhaps seventeen, was not masturbating. He was just um, exposing himself. Uh, Edward Steichen was horrified. He was angry. He dragged Mary into the house. He fired the gardener, of course, Um, but he used words that she never forgot. He said to her, now you have lost your innocence. And so for Mary from her childhood on, What sex education really meant was the elimination of any cause for children to feel shame over their sexuality. She refused to think of herself as having been a victim of childhood sexual abuse, which is what many people would say today looking at this experience. Instead, she framed it Uh, both of these experiences with her mother and her father as examples of one larger phenomenon, the inability to allow children to feel positive about their own sexuality. And that is the, in my opinion, um, and, and certainly in her opinion, the genesis of her interest in sex education.
1: Right. So I just want to follow up with a quote from your book. You write on page 62, quote, Calderon emphasized the connection between children's experience of self-pleasure and their adult capacity for healthy sexuality, end quote. So do you think that sums up Mary Calderon's philosophy or her ideas on young people and sexuality? Well, um, I think I think
0: it um it it sums up a lot of it. Um, for her, the twin pillars of sex education were honesty plus scientific accuracy. She wanted parents to use the correct terminology. she um, uh, and and she could be funny about this. she uh, she would, Uh, give lectures to high school students and she would ask them what's a four letter word ending with k that means intercourse and there would be a (laughs) gasp and and then after a suitable three or four second pause calderon would say talk (laughs) A L K. Um, her her idea was on the one hand to acknowledge that there was all sorts of language out there about sexuality. But on the other, that communication and honesty were were core um, core aspects of being sex educators, whether as parents or as teachers or as therapists or whatever. Um, She also believed that one needed to be age-appropriate, of course. Um, you, You wouldn't say to a... A uh, seven-year-old, what you would say to a seventeen-year-old. She also believed that um, uh, positivity was really of the essence. That the the most important thing that you could convey to uh, a child or a student was that sexuality is a joyful, natural part of being human, and. She just wanted to destigmatize and normalize and she wanted to eliminate shame. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: and also she you talk a lot about responsibility too. Yes.
0: And yes.
1: you know, and I think from the parental, you know, when you're talking about parents and your job as a parent. Yeah. Uh to not shame, but also the parents' responsibility. And to teach you know these healthy ideas and attitudes right. and that there's almost like another layer of responsibility too about how your sexuality is also one of your responsibilities
0: that's really well said um the, the I'll I'll talk about both of those things um she believed that parents first of all had a responsibility to educate their children appropriately, but positively. But that part of that was to say, um, it's perfectly okay to masturbate, to um, find joy in in the good feeling you get from that. But it's a private experience. And to make sure that the children understood that this was something not for a a public place it was for your own room when you're alone um it was and and implied in that is that um this is something for a child to engage in for itself for themselves uh adults are not implied as part of this experience um the other side of responsibility is that she really strongly believed that sex education courses should take on the theme of personal responsibility and mutual respect. And that, and, and this was always a very complicated idea to get across schools shouldn't supplant parental or Church or, or synagogue or religious organizations' responsibilities. They shouldn't be uh, teaching what um, uh, what uh, parents want to be teaching their children, but they can't avoid values completely, because it is a value to say that personal respect and mutual respect are a responsibility of of humans that if you are acting in a way that's harmful to someone else or if you are being persuaded to let someone else harm you 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 are not being responsible either for yourself or to someone else she was very clear and all of the um, uh, the people she worked with were very clear on that point and And you can't get away from the fact that that is in the realm of values, but it's, these are secular values. These are, these are to use a uh, buzzword that uh, some people have demonized. uh, These are humanistic values. They're they're the part of the core of being um, a full human being. So uh, that, that, idea of responsibility was extremely important. The The trouble is, of course, that um, you can't easily codify how that works operationally. So therefore, what you have to teach is um, how to make good decisions. and And so that is the aspect of sex education, I think, that uh, has elicited enormous controversy over the years, but we'll get to that. I, I I think probably later on.
1: Yeah, and you know, I was really struck when I read about her belief that sexuality is a human right. And I was teaching women's history a couple of weeks ago after having read this book, and I talked to my class about this idea of sexuality as a human right, and my students completely agreed. They they responded so positively. To this idea, you know, so it's so um, interesting to me how um, how she still is really her ideas resonate with with college students in 2022. You know, right, you, right, you know, right. Any any thoughts about that?
0: Um. Uh, well, first, um, I agree with you. It is uh, certainly the case that uh, she believed this very, very devoutly, <laughs> um, and and to the extent that her organization, SICUS, uh, put out a statement about uh, freedom of personal sexual choice as a human right in 1974. It's really quite early. Uh, she herself uh, and, and some of her colleagues assisted the World Health Organization in their constructing a, a doctrine of sexual rights and sexual and a definition of sexual health, in 1975, it was really quite important to her. It it came out of uh, her uh, basic belief that sexuality is, and I mean it may be different in each person, but as A phenomenon. It was an inborn biological system. She thought that there were two parallel systems, the reproductive system and the sexual system. Um, She didn't get very far in, in, uh, she was not a researcher. She'd come up with ideas and she'd, she'd send them out into the world and people would, you know, either they would cower or they would say, oh yeah, go for it. But, but she was not somebody to do the research to follow up on it. But she believed that, that, that sexuality was clearly part of uh, the human entity, the human being. And so uh, that's why uh, she used the word sexuality rather than sex to give the impression that it was part of who you are and not just what you do. That's one of her most famous quotes. Um, And, and she goes on to say, it's not just what you do in bed, in the dark. It's, it's everything you do and you are, it's part of your being. Now she was saying those things in the 19, she actually started saying uh, talking about such things in the late 1940s but she she really made many more statements to this effect in the 60s and the 70s she would talk about and and she was simply not in uh, at a point where she had any concept of gender fluidity so this is all quite binary and that's of the era but she would she would talk about Manness and womanness, and it would drive reporters crazy. They would write things like, "Well, what does she mean by that?" And it's an indication that that people were not yet fluent in the language of gender, as opposed to sex or uh, binary gender or um, or fluidity in one's sexuality. None of that was. Was widely spoken of. Uh, I mean, the gay rights movement was in its in its youth uh, at that at that point, and and beyond that, uh, there was not much talk about about um, sexual um, uh, sexuality that was anything but heteronormative. So, uh, so I don't fault Calderon particularly for the vagueness of her language, she was struggling to express something. And what she was struggling to express was the, um, and she used the word totality, that your sexuality was part of the totality of your being. And uh, this was both ahead of its time and diffuse enough to drive some people absolutely bats. (laughs) bats.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, and she does kind of lay the groundwork though. I mean, I actually have to say that, you know, reading this book helped me to understand the ideas of gender fluidity today Oh, a little better. Oh, thank and, you. And, you know, the vocabulary and the way of expressing these complex ideas. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that not only were, she, were her views, you know, ahead of her time, but she's really laying groundwork here. I think if she were still with us, yes, you know, yes. she would be, you know, I think really helpful for articulating some of these ideas that have become so important. And you know, working with young people, I, I can just say that it's so important to them. Uh, to have a way to talk about these things, have, talk about sexuality and mm-hmm. their own feelings about themselves, that um, this book really did help me to to communicate with my own students about about how they feel about sexual matters and sexuality.
0: That's great. That's yeah. great.
1: So this podcast channel looks at women's history. So how do you think your book fits in with women's history? Do you have any thoughts on? on that? Uh, well, um, uh, first,
0: uh, as my story of my um, introduction to Calderon might indicate, uh, it does hark back to the very um, beginnings of women's history, the, the, the earliest days when we were writing um, restoration stories. We were We were excavating, we were finding women Uh, in history that had been lost or overlooked or uh, deliberately minimized. Uh, In Calderon's case, I think that uh, she was partially lost and partially she was deliberately minimized by some scholars writing uh, um, about uh, the history of reproductive rights and not writing about sexuality. Uh, and in some cases, uh, people writing about sex education, um, I, I will have to say, in in their defense, the Calderon papers at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard are gigantic, and if you were going to take on Calderon, you really you would really have to devote yourself to that. Um, it's not easy to sum her up quickly, uh, and she so so uh, for whatever reason, uh, there have been. Uh, brief discussions of Calderon in uh, some earlier books uh, that simply either minimized or misunderstood her. But in addition to that, um, the diffuseness of her language was uh, ahead of her time. And Made people uneasy? Um, uh, does she know what she's talking about? What, is she in over her head? Well, no, she did know what she was talking about, but she was addressing herself to young people. She was addressing herself to educators. She was addressing herself to the general public. She wanted to speak as broadly and as untechnically as possible. Um, and then the, the other reason why I think she has been forgotten is that. Uh, uh, there was an accusation made against her by right-wing commentators who deliberately slurred her uh, a kind of guilt by association that she was not against um, adult-child sexual relations, which is simply untrue. It was simply untrue. And she she responded immediately uh, saying, this is not true. But um, again, her language was always so florid uh, that it was easy to misquote her and she was misquoted. And in the end, her organization, uh, when she, at the point that she was in her late seventies, her organization decided it would be better if she retired entirely Uh, because they didn't think they could afford to keep dealing with these um, really scurrilous untruths.
1: Mm.
0: And so they stopped talking about her. Um, It's a little bit analogous to the way Planned Parenthood downplayed Margaret Sanger after a certain point because of um, difficulties in explaining away some of margaret Sanger's early enthusiasms in in caldron's case it's not because she ever had any enthusiasm for anything that would be considered uh, scurrilous it's just that she was tarred by the ultra right and it's simply it child sexual abuse is the third rail as i write of sexuality politics
1: mm-hmm.
0: so once there's even the slightest taint, even though it's completely false, um, she she was dropped for a number of years. Uh, and it's time to reclaim her because uh, she is important. And uh, uh, no one was more important than she was in bringing sex education to the public in a
1: modern and positive way. No, it's really, it. it I think that it's really important that we we study her and and like you said, that we reclaim her and, and talk about all the, the accomplishments because um, it's really an, it's an amazing story. And I never heard of her. I was embarrassed to say I really had never heard of her before reading your book, but, and then I read in your book that she had been interviewed on TV and had been on the Dick Cavett show and, you know, things like things that I watched, when I was growing up in the '70s, so I was really amazed. I didn't know her name, and uh, so it's 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 great to know though that her papers were preserved, and that she's there for study. I mean, that's um, that's at least uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a saving grace in a way. You know, Absolutely. Even- right um, to, to have yeah. the, uh, the source material is really such a that's really wonderful that that yes. is there at the Schlesinger library so thank thank goodness for that um, and I wanted to ask you about another theme that runs through your book. Um, so the idea that people in the United States are uncomfortable with discussing sexual matters is you know the thing that, is the obstacle uh, throughout this book. And do you have any insight into why are Americans like this? Why, are, why do you think the United <laughs> States is like this? It's, you know, um, you know, maybe too big of a question, but I would love to know your thoughts having studied this.
0: Uh, you know, I, I really think that there's a kind of uh intergenerational trauma around talking about sexuality. I think um, imagine one's grandparents and how difficult it was for them. And then imagine or remember, as I can certainly remember, how difficult it was for my parents. And then that communicates to you and on and on and on that there's something fraught about this subject of our bodies and our sexuality. And because you, you get that when you're so young, I mean, children pick things up really, really easily and really young. And it's exceedingly difficult to avoid learning that your parents are just a little uncomfortable or maybe very uncomfortable with this topic. So you don't talk about it either. And then, I, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I'm certain that I did a better job with my daughter than my parents did with me. I, uh, it, it wouldn't take much, first of all. Um, but secondly, um, I, I, she tells me I did. So I, I'm going to assume that I did, uh, but it wasn't easy. And, and after all, I am highly aware of the, of the subject and of uh, what one might or might not say to a kid. Uh, but it was still, I, I'm sure it wasn't easy for me either. Um, on top of that, of course, the uh, the subject of sexuality and, and being positive about your sexuality and the idea of sexual freedom uh, is an idea that really cuts up against uh, a conservative intellectual and, and cultural and religious vein in this country, the, uh, y- you asked uh, before we began whether other countries seem to be as bad at this as we are. Um, and uh, it's really not easy or possibly it's impossible to compare cultures in any definitive way. But certainly uh, there was a study of children's comfort and familiarity with sexual terms that was done back in the 80s, I think, and and U.S. children were at the bottom of Western industrial countries. So, trying to compare like with like, um, the U.S. was certainly <laughs> at the bottom. Um, uh, I I think that um, this is certainly getting better. But not maybe because parents are be- doing a better job of it, but because kids are taking it up themselves. They're, they're, you, th- there are popular movies um, uh, that, uh, that show middle school kids dealing with their sexuality and, and feeling uptight about it. Um, you have kids doing their own podcasting. Um, uh, And then unfortunately, you also have pornography. And pornography is exactly the wrong way for kids to learn about sex. Uh, And it it may seem like it's getting parents off the hook, but what it's doing is creating a horrible image, a horrible model of non-consensual, fake, degrading um and exploitative sexuality it it's giving young kids and particularly boys all the wrong ideas about what is okay f- for a, a a teenage girl it's astonishing how terrible that can be uh for everybody for everybody i i um, I, I, I i can't so sex education um can't help with that, but
1: it's, it's uh, you know, and I remember even you, you mentioned Judy Bloom's novel forever in the book. And I remember being in, I think I was in junior high school when that came out and boy was everybody interested in that novel. (laughs) 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 And I remember girls in my class passing forever around Uh (laughs) to read the the sexy parts and uh so as much as parents are hung up have their own hang-ups and how they want to keep their kids innocent of of having mature sexual relationships everyone is it's a natural curiosity and Mm -hmm. it would be much if people would just get past that, transcend their own lack of comfort with the subject matter and have a a robust and honest open conversation. Right. Uh, People wouldn't have to be passing the book around the back of the class. Uh, Well, you know, but I do want to thank Judy Bloom. For
0: some information. For sure. Oh yes. Judy Bloom is, a, is a, a hero to the sex education movement, I, I believe. Um, Calderon says um, the, something like, the, the far right would like to keep children innocent. It's impossible to keep children innocent, but you can keep them ignorant. Um, and uh, up to a point, she's right. But then as you're saying, after a certain point, you really can't keep them ignorant. Because there's always a way that children learn what they need to learn. Absolutely. And, you know, and so
1: let's talk a little bit about the doctors, right? So (laughs) I found this to be so interesting that the title of the chapter um, in your book is called Heal Thyself. And it talks a lot about how doctors are also very uncomfortable in this uh, time period discussing sex with their patients in their own practices. So right. can you tell us a little bit about this in your right. book? Right,
0: Well, the, the, the full chapter title is Physician Heal Thyself. And Calderon uses that quotation as a way to say, and I think at the time she's addressing a large group of psychiatrists, um, and she's using it to say um, there is a lot of evidence that doctors are just as uneasy talking about sexuality as their patients are. And increasingly, and particularly with the release of the birth control pill in 1960, patients are coming to their doctors and wanting to ask questions about both sexuality and reproduction, certainly birth control. And and doctors are fumbling. They do not know how to respond. So um, th- the introduction of sex education to medical students came about partly out of a recognition of this fact, uh, both obstetrics and gynecology and psychiatry are the specialties that made the most uh, dramatic forays into sex education for medical students. And in the case of the psychiatrist who was the real early leader in this, in the um, late 50s and early 60s, uh, Harold Leaf was his name. And uh, he he was on the wards with medical students and the patient they were interviewing was someone who had some sort of sexual problem. And afterwards, Dr. Leaf asked the students, Well, what would you say about this? How would you deal with it? And this one student looked at him and said, Well, he's 45. Look how old he is. What's the problem? Uh, and um, Leif was himself the same age as the patient. So <laughs> he realized immediately, this is a problem. Medical students are really not not, um, uh, not where they need to be in thinking about sexuality. And then he began to study what uh, medical students' attitudes were. And he discovered that they were every bit as uptight as uh, the, the public and certainly no more informed. And that was the beginning of a very serious effort to bring curricula on sex education into medical schools.
1: Um, You even mentioned that uh, of of patients going to doctors and, and, you know, how difficult it must've been for the patient to talk about their sexual histories and the doctor laughing. Yes, yes. And that, can you imagine first of all how that patient must've felt? after, you know, maybe drumming up the courage. Yes. Yes. To to talk about a sexual problem with their doctor and then have the doctor laugh and not because it's funny, but because they're just so completely uncomfortable and unable to talk about it. Exactly. And um, I was just uh, stunned by that.
0: I, I empathized with the, the patient in that in that uh, instance, um, I I think that uh, we uh, we probably both remember uh, how awkward it was in let's say in the in the 70s or 80s to talk to physicians about sex, and the only thing really uh, besides perhaps the courses that medical schools have been offering ever since that maybe made it a little better was the absolute necessity of physicians to get a grip in the wake of the AIDS, HIV AIDS epidemic. Uh, And, and, and that is more about disease prevention than it is about sexuality, but at least it was requiring medical students and residents and their teachers to come to grips with sexual activity, sexual partner choice, sexual orientation, and, um, uh, and differing attitudes towards sexuality, which, and even more important, being required to think about one's own attitude about sexuality and gender because one's own attitude is going to impact, have an impact on how one responds to a patient, and interestingly, Harold Leif's field of research was um, doctor-patient communication, and that was one of the reasons he was so interested in this particular uh, offshoot of that general topic.
1: Yeah. And, so you know, you mentioned the you mentioned the pill. Yeah. And, but also thinking, uh, I was also thinking about the cultural change that's going on in the country Mm -hmm. with film, like Peyton Place, for example. Right. Right. Peyton Place, the popularity of things like Playboy magazine. And it may seem to Americans, that everyone was having a lot better sex than they were. (laughs) And gee, I'm missing out on something. I'm going to talk to my doctor the next time I go, I go to the office because all this is going on in society. And I feel maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe I'm missing out on a better sex life. Maybe I'm frigid. This
0: this, this bugaboo of of uh, the the uh, adult woman, um, and yes, you're absolutely right. And then, of course, Kinsey and Masters and Johnson had published in the '40s and '50s and '60s uh, and '70s even. Um, uh, people were certainly getting the idea that there is something going on here. And the kids seem to be having a much better time than I am. Yeah,
1: uh, you know, and and so that all has to come to bear on the medical profession, right? right. Exactly, and- exactly. Yes, they um,
0: were confronted with the possibility that some of their patients might be more knowledgeable than they were. And uh, this is uh, simply not a good place to be. If if you're if you're um, presenting yourself as an expert,
1: right? And so, did they? You mentioned uh, in the in the book about using actually using erotica and Playboy magazine. <laughs> yes. And so, c- can you talk a little bit about that? Well, they
0: they uh, had very limited means to talk about uh, sexual behavior. And you know, in in um, other aspects of medicine, uh, as one of the people I quote says, the the educational philosophy is um, see one, do one, teach one, um, and well, or learn by doing. And neither of those really apply when it comes to human sexuality. So how are they going to convey? the essence of it to medical students. How are they going to demonstrate what it is people actually do? Since it was also discovered, particularly in the 60s, um, that many medical students had far less sexual awareness and experience than ordinary college students uh, because they had spent their college years Getting grades in the but, library, right? <laughs> but not getting dates. <laughs> so, um, so they used uh, they used um, uh, explicit movies. They used porn. Uh, some of it might be considered soft porn, but most of it was hard porn. And at first, they did it without any preparation. So these, I I would say, these poor medical students were. You know essentially um
1: thrown in the deep end of the pool right exactly
0: <laughs> uh, ushered into a classroom and said here make
1: of this what you will yeah a little and, uh, a little context may have been important
0: here yeah. so there was no introduction given and and no debriefing afterwards that was at first but they cor- corrected that um and so uh th- there were there were uh, bumps along the way in in the process of educating medical students uh i have uh, witnessed some reasonably current day medical uh, school sex education lectures or lectures about human sexuality and uh they're considerably more relaxed but uh they're probably also uh, a lot less explicit yeah. But on the other hand, medical students are probably a lot more experienced today than they used to be.
1: Yeah, you know, and so you think about all these obstacles, right? The parents don't know how to talk to their kids, the doctors don't know how to talk to their patients. So it seems that to achieve the goal here, the goal. Of having a society with healthy, responsible attitudes towards sexuality, it seems like those those are really big obstacles. Yes. So she faced a lot of challenges. It seems to me um, to achieve her goals. So what do you think? How does she handle achieving well, her goals?
0: Well, there are two. There are two aspects to that. One is the very natural challenge you were just describing so well. Uh, And, and, and Calderon was really quite masterful at that she could go into a room with almost any group of people as long as they were interested. uh, And she could disarm uh, uh, suspicion, she could disarm nervousness, Uh, the the uh, anecdote about the four letter word that ends with K uh, is typical of her ability to break the ice and get people talking. She would, um, she was very successful talking to students in, particularly in the early years and uh, eliciting, you know that because the questions that are recorded as having been asked by students are very uh, vulnerable sounding questions. They they really trusted her. And there are letters to her that say, I trust you. So she's really quite good at that. But the other kind of obstacle w- were the obstacles that arose after the first few years of her getting out there and and publicizing the kind of work that she and Sikis were doing. And those were the obstacles presented by the far-right organizations that arose in the late 50s and early 60s. I I think they didn't quite know what to do with sex education at first, so it took a few years. But by the late 1960s, uh, a group called the Christian Crusade, which was a a far-right evangelical group, uh, began a highly public attack, not only on sex education in general, but on Calderon in particular. And uh, one of one of the officials of the Christian Crusade, which was based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, wrote a pamphlet, a notorious pamphlet called um, "Should Raw and Is the Schoolhouse the?" proper place to teach raw sex? And this was in capital letters. Is the schoolhouse the proper place to teach raw sex? And the pamphlet was full of deliberateness quotations. It was full of fear-mongering, talking about uh, the way teachers were um, uh, trying to get students to engage in incredibly uh, risky behaviors and that sort of thing would go on. Um, The John Birch Society immediately jumped on the bandwagon and developed a bunch of parents groups around the country and they developed letter writing campaigns that sent letters to hundreds, maybe thousands of small town newspapers disseminating untruths and, and uh, scandalous untruths. Uh, one was that uh, teachers were undressing before their students uh, as part of the educational process, uh, th- things that were wild and uh, simply false. And so now by the late 60s and early 70s, everywhere Calderon went, she would find not an interested group in the, uh, of uh, listeners, but a largely interested group spiked with a couple of deliberate provocateurs who were coached to yell out uh, scandalous and, and um, uh, dismaying comments to upset the rest of the audience. And if possible, disrupt the meeting. So a woman in the audience would say out loud, "Um, "I don't want my children to see pictures of sperm spouting." And well, you know, this is not going to be happening. But people in the audience who are not in on the on the uh, the conspiracy. Uh, would be dismayed, they'd be disturbed, and they wouldn't know what to think. Or picket lines outside school buildings or college buildings. So it became a very, very unpleasant time for Calderon and very exhausting. And,
1: um, And that's going on right now with these yes. parental right bills all over the yes. country and they're duplicated and very well coordinated and going to board of right. education meetings and so yep. we're seeing uh, uh this same thing going on. So do you think um so let's talk about some of the success that she had in changing the curriculum in in the education system.
0: Well, um I her success Uh, Of course, she she couldn't possibly do it alone. And um, there was a successor to her at SICUS named Deborah Hafner, who who changed the direction somewhat by, and because it was the era of AIDS um, and emphasized not so much pleasure, but health. And I mean, she was very sex positive, certainly. um, And the idea is that sexuality is healthy. But the other side of that is that you need to learn how to avoid the aspects of it that are unhealthy. And so uh, she devised in response to the federal government calling for comprehensive sexuality education to combat AIDS she created and brought in a group of partner organizations to create what has become known as Comprehensive Sexuality Education, CSE. And really, you can date the birth of Comprehensive Sex Education or Comprehensive Sexuality Education from 1991, when CECUS and its allies published its first guidelines for comprehensive sex sexuality education grades kindergarten through twelve. And 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 this is deliberately building on Calderon, certainly, but it is an attempt to adapt to the the necessities of a really terrible time, the, the AIDS epidemic was terrible uh, to the extent that there is still uh, uh, HIV in the world, it's still terrible. Um, But of course we know so much more now than they did then that that knowledge is certainly power. Um, Comprehensive sex education, which comes straight out of Sikus's original ideas, but adapts to the times, emphasizes like Calderon, Uh, scientific accuracy, Uh, it it emphasizes responsibility and teaching children how to make informed and responsible and healthy choices. But it emphasizes um, uh, safe sex practices. Uh, It emphasizes gender inclusivity. It emphasizes inclusivity of all kinds. Uh, it emphasizes um, uh, all of the things that will make sex, uh, including abstinence, uh, including, in other words, from the point of view of CSE, delayed sexuality rather than abstinence, uh, all the things that will make it healthy and positive and um, part of an educational experience and not a, uh, a fear-mongering experience. So uh, one, of the, one of the mottos that I read in Hafner's materials, which are also at the Schlesinger by the way, um, is don't just say no, say not now. Having the presence of mind and the, the understanding and the maturity to understand that sex is a good thing, but possibly not right now. So that I think is a huge step forward. Mm-hmm. And, and it really goes back to Calderon and the early days of Sikas.
1: Right, right. And like I said earlier, like kind of like laying this groundwork yes. for vocabulary and a way of, of talking and yes. communicating about it. Yeah. So did Mary Calderon consider herself a feminist? No. <laughs> I'm I'm so sorry to say that.
0: <laughs> Um, The feminists did not give up on her. They invited her to the the scholar and the feminist conference, very famous conference at Barnard in 1982, which was all about uh, sexuality and the role of sexuality in feminism. Uh, And they invited her because of her uh, belief in uh, uh, the positive and pleasurable nature of sexuality. Uh, But, uh, it is telling that the name of her talk at that conference was "Above and Beyond Politics." <laughs> so she uh, she did not like to be a follower. I think that's the long and short of it. Uh, and uh, she also uh, liked men, and she had a, a quite narrow-minded, um, impulsive, really. A reactive idea that feminism was anti-men and uh, uh, and she was loyal to her supporters and Hugh Hefner was one of her supporters so uh, by supporting people like Hugh Hefner she was certainly making it very difficult for feminists to support her but by the 80s uh, she was invited to many uh, feminist health uh, events and uh, she was given honors in the early 90s. Just months before she died, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Uh, I mean, her her work was so pro women, uh, and even though she wouldn't call herself a feminist, she always insisted that uh, women's rights to their bodies and bodily integrity and bodily pleasure was crucial, uh, were crucial. So she, she is a feminist in spite of herself, I think.
1: Not, you know, not self-proclaimed. She didn't like the label. The label was not something she wanted, but, you know, certainly her ideas are in, in coordination with a lot of things, but it's very interesting to me that she's, it gets sort of uh, criticized by the Christian right, of course, but also from the feminist left. And so it's a very interesting box or corner to be in. Right. Uh, Right. You know, it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, So what do you think that Mary Calderon would think about the public backlash about teaching sexuality in school today? What do you think she would be?
0: Well, I okay. think she, she would not be surprised at all. Uh, she'd be disappointed, but she wouldn't be surprised she really wouldn't and when you consider that focus on the family is still around and they were they were there uh, saying many of the same things in the 1970s um, it would be all too familiar to her, all too familiar.
1: Oh, wow. Well, this book is a beautifully written and timely biography, but it is really much more. It's a bigger story about American culture and sexuality and public health. So thank you so much. I want to thank Dr. Ellen S. Moore for joining me today on the show and for a great discussion of her book, The Transformation of American Sex Education, Mary Calderon and the Fight for Sexual Health, published by New York University Press. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semecka. Keep reading.